Welcome, this is the Sales IQ Podcast. My name is Luigi Prestonenzi, and I'm on a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be. Each week, we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe, so we can help you master the art of selling. Do you sometimes get a sale and you're left wondering, why did they buy from me? Or on the flip side, you executed an incredible sales process. Customer said everything was right. You did everything they said. The relationship was strong. And then crickets, they ghost you. And you're left wondering, what the hell went wrong? This week, we're talking about that exact subject. We're talking about why some customers buy and why some customers don't buy. And we're joined by global win-loss expert, Ken McLaughlin, who spends his time analyzing deals and talking to customers, finding out why they buy and why they don't buy. This episode is brought to you by VanillaSoft.com, sales engagement platform like no other. VanillaSoft is a platform that helps you engage your leads like a CRM just simply can't do. CRM are great, but... To engage with your leads effectively, to turn a marketing qualified lead into a sales qualified lead and put more opportunities into your pipeline, you need to get yourself a sales engagement platform. So do yourself a favor, head over to VanillaSoft.com, sign up for a free trial and see why so many salespeople are closing more deals as a result of using VanillaSoft. So before we get into today's show, guys, I just want to say thanks again for subscribing and for listening to this podcast. I do this to help you be the very best you can be. Please continue to like, rate, and share wherever you listen to podcasts. And please don't forget to send me a message on LinkedIn. I absolutely love receiving those messages of gratitude and thanks. So please keep it up. As sellers today, we're kind of inundated with so many options to help us sell. You know, we have sales enablement, we've got tech stacks. It's like going in, you know, when you're a little kid and you went into the candy store and you just didn't know what to choose. You got that little box and you knew, oh, I got to add all these little things I can choose from, but what the hell do I choose? Because I don't want to fill up with the wrong thing. Selling today is kind of just like that experience. We can sometimes get overwhelmed, but when you strip it all back, when you take it everything back from what we're, what we're designed to do. The actual process is really simple. Our job is to talk to people that have a need, find out what it is, determine where they're going in the future so we can design a solution to help them get there. And it's really simple. We have something and they buy something. But there are so many things that are happening today that are making it harder and harder for sellers to hit their target. And that's why I'm excited to bring you this episode this week because we remove all the thought and the assumption and we talk about the data and we talk to Kean McLaughlin about this exact subject because he spent the last decade working with companies, breaking this particular subject down and understanding why people buy and why people don't buy. So this is going to be an incredible episode for anyone that is looking just to get better at their craft. Like, I want you to think about this. You're in the jungle, and this is an opportunity to move all the the sales intelligence tools, the tech stacks, 
everything that is in front of us that's been designed to make it easier for us. We're moving it all aside so we can focus on one thing, the buyer and what makes the buyer tick. So I can't wait to bring this episode to you and get into it with Kian. All right, so welcome to the uh, Sales IQ podcast, Kian. Thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> Mate, I tell you what, like out of all the guests I've tried to get on my show, you, you, you actually have taken me, you're the longest person that I've had to hunt to get on my show. Are you serious? And we've known each other for a few years. <laughs> Well, hopefully it's worthwhile because it's going to be terrible if it's uh, if it's a real damn squib after all that time. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll do my best to make it worthwhile. Well, mate, really pumped to have you on. And I think this is a really cool episode when you think, you know, about the topic that we're going to talk about is, you know, why people buy and why they don't buy um, given the, ex- you know, what you do as a sales pro and as, a, as, a, as an expert in our industry. But before we get into the um, the topic of you know, why people buy and why they don't. Love to hear a bit more about how you started in the world of selling. Sure. Um, look, I don't know if my story is is exactly the same way as other people get into it, but probably is. I stumbled into it, um, is the honest truth. Um, you could probably hear from my accent, you know anyway, Louis, I'm not originally from, from Australia. I'm originally from Ireland. Came over. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I, I thought you were just from some funny place in Sydney, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Far North Queensland. That's, this is the far North <laughs> Queensland accent you can hear. I came, I came over for a year as a backpacker, backpack on my back, finished university, wanted to see a bit of the world. And um, like all good stories, I met a girl and I decided I wanted to, to hang around and stay for a while. Yeah. And I was playing, I was playing soccer on a, on a team and one of the guys on the team was a recruiter. And I said to him, mate, I need to, I need to find a job that's going to sponsor me and keep me in this country for a while. And so he said, okay, cool, I'll line you up some interviews. So he lined me up, I don't know, probably five or six interviews. And one of those interviews was a little small um, technology software company. And I bullshitted my way into a job um, as an inside salesperson, having never done anything in sales, never never done anything with, with, with technology. I didn't really, genuinely, didn't know how to log on to the Hotmail account that my brother had set me up when I left the country. That's, that, was, that was my level of, of understanding of the IT industry. Um, and that's how I got my start back in sort of the late nineties and selling budgeting, planning and forecasting software, or really just trying to book meetings and then worked all the way sort of through the industry, inside sales, mm. into channel management, into sales management. And about t- almost 10 years ago now I stepped out. I was a, at a company called SAP, stepped out to set up Trinity and, um, yeah, I've been running my own race ever since. That's amazing. And I know I've, I've had the pleasure of working with you on a couple of projects and, yeah, it's been almost 10 years, right, since you made the jump. So that's an incredible right. story. Um, and it's funny because, you know, often when you say, hey, you start in sales, nobody actually says, oh, you know, when, when, I was in, when I was growing up, I wanted to be in sales. So You don't hear that very often. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, been lucky enough to travel all over the world and work with t- sales teams all over the world. And I'll often ask that question, you know, t- show of hands, how many of you wanted to work in sales when you grew up? And I'm, I'm yet to see hmm. many hands going up in any rooms. But yeah. but I think we all get, we all get here by weird different routes but but then when we arrive it's okay great what are we going to do and how do we do it and what do we bring to the table and if you come with all these different experiences I think that's a really really positive thing because it means we all look at the world of sales with a slightly different lens yeah. which which is great but on the flip side it also means that 
what I take for granted, you don't necessarily take for granted. And my expectations are, you know, on time is late. You, you've got to do a ton of discovery. You've got to come in curious. You've got to be empathetic and authentic. All these things that I take for granted, you wouldn't necessarily. You're, you've got a very processed mind. And other people might come from a more, um, you know, a financial perspective. So we all bring different skills and experiences to bear. And it's really how do we leverage those to, you know, to, to make it valuable to the customers we interact with every day. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's it's interesting you say that, right? Because that's what I suppose that's what life's all about. There's different people, and we all have different skills and attributes. And when we look at sales teams today, you know, it's not like an atypical salesperson, right? You've got introverts that are some of the highest performing sales pros out there. You know, because their ability to be pragmatic, they're prepared, they follow a process. And they don't want to talk about themselves all the time, and they yeah. they listen really well. And absolutely, and I think there's a the stereotypes of salespeople as the loudest person in the room and, and really, you know, focused on themselves and, uh, you know, um, only focused on money. It's actually, it's completely opposed to most of the salespeople I've met in my career and particularly the really, really successful ones. That's not, they're humble. They're, mm. as you say, they're often quite introverted. They love to help. They're really good at connecting people. Yeah. They don't need to be the one in, in the limelight all the time. So I think, there's this kind of negative perception of stereotype of salespeople out there in the world, which which is actually really unfortunate because it's not representative yeah. of, of the vast majority of people in our profession. And I think, you know, obviously there is um, our profession is still in some pockets of, you know, if you look at some of the studies, there's still a trust barrier, right, between the buyer yeah. and the seller. Um and I think, you know, our, our industry is to blame for that, right? It's the way we've behaved over a number of years that have created that, that you know, that kind of characteristics of a, of a sales conman. You know, my dad, you know, says to me the other night about when he bought his first car and the way that he went about it. And even still, he thinks the same of, of, of salespeople today. And I had a, yeah. had a very robust conversation how, how I thought it was different, right? But, and I think, you know, the, the opportunity we have as a profession is continue to elevate um, and continue to demonstrate why sales professionals are different from sales people or sales reps. I agree. And I think there's a few things that are working in our favor at the moment. So I think back in the bad old days, salespeople had all the information and, you know, therefore they had all the power because if I, if I have, you know, the answers to all of your questions and you can't find those answers yourself, then, mm. then you need me. Um, Whereas now with the, you know, with the advent of the internet, they know way more than we know. So yeah. all of a sudden we need to be able to bring a different value um, to the, to the, to the conversation. And also it's much easier to get found out. So, mm. you know, everyone is connected to everyone these days. So if you burn bridges or you do the wrong thing or you come across as shonky or you talk about wanting to partner, but really you just want to close them this week, this month, this yeah. quarter, you get found out really, really quickly. And then, um, you know, customers vote with their wallets and they head in a different direction. So I think that's a great thing for us as an industry because it's forcing the the minority that are doing the wrong thing. It's forcing them to do one of two things, either get their shit together or or leave because yeah. they're, they're the only two options available. Absolutely. And I think this is what really, you know, excites me about our topic today because there's a lot of, you know, content out there where we're now living in a world of content like if we think when i first started in selling i had to go hunt books right it wasn't like today you can just jump on audible and get the best-selling book in your ear within 30 seconds right yeah exactly. um we didn't have youtube to watch the likes of you know brian tracy or the the old zig ziglars or napoleon hill content now we've got so much content we've probably got too much content and we're like yeah. well well a guru is telling me what to do 
this guru is telling me different to this person. What should I actually do? Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see why some salespeople are getting a bit paralyzed as to what action they should take next. I think what I love about what you do in your business um, and having worked with you before, um, you actually flip that and go, I don't care what the sellers are doing. Let's actually talk to the buyers and see what are the, why are the buyers actually buying and why don't they buy? So can you tell us a bit about what you currently do and, and that type of insight and intel that you get? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's probably worth a bit of context. So I mentioned almost 10 years ago, I kind of became a cubicle SKP and jumped ship from SAP. Um, I had this, I had this sense, you know, it was almost like an emperor's new clothes moment at, at some point in my career. I was like, hang on a second, we're putting all this time and effort and energy into these sales cycles that might take three months or six months or longer. And we're doing a pretty decent job throughout the process. And then at the end, we get a decision. And one of two things happens. We go out to the pub to celebrate or we go out to the pub to commiserate. Yeah. But we, we don't really know why we've, we've won or we've lost. And there was no analysis being done. And, you know, I've always played sport all my life. And I know you were very sporty as well, Louis. For me, it was like, if you're a professional uh, athlete, mm. then you will always be looking for ways to get an edge. You'll always be looking for ways to improve your performance, to better understand how your competitors are beating you and to close that gap. Yeah. We call ourselves sales professionals, but I think the sales bit we get for free, the professional bit we need to earn. Mm. And in order to earn that professional tag, we need to actively act professionally. And professionalism for me is saying we need to do some analysis at the end of the sales cycle, win, lose, or draw to work out what's happening. And so that was the thing. That was the sort of the, the, the aha moment I had. It was like, why aren't we doing this? And so to, to rule out the really, really obvious, I said, well, Maybe our customers have the answers, but surely it's not that simple. So I went to a whole lot of you know, customers at the end of the sales cycle and I said, hey, is there any chance I could come and sit down with you for an hour and just kind of walk through the process you went through and, and help you know, me to, to extract some value from the process and, and share it with my team and share it with the partners and so we can learn from this and improve. And to my surprise, there was a, there was a ton of um, positive feedback and coaches said, yeah, sure, and you come. Yeah. And to my even greater surprise, what they told me was so far removed from what I thought had happened in all these sales cycles. Yeah. It was, you know, we were over here. We were like, we won for this reason. We won. And it was definitely this. They were the three things. And then you talk to the customer and they were like, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. It definitely wasn't that. It was this other thing. And that one person who came in that we really liked and we really trusted and we thought, and, and I was like, oh, we were so far apart. And so that was the kind of the epiphany. I was like, all right. We, we should be doing this. As an industry, we should be doing this. We've earned the right to us. Our cost of sale yep. earns the right to get some feedback. And so for, for the best part of a decade, that's what the service that we've been de delivering to B2B companies around the world. We go in and we sit down with their end customers, the, you know, the folks who actually made the buying decision or, or, or didn't make the buying decision. And we ask them about their experience. What are they like? What made sense to them? What frustrated them? And then we take all those learnings and we kind of put them together and we reverse engineer them back into the vendors and say, this is why you won, or this is why you lost, yeah. or this is what you need to do. And if you do that once, it's really interesting. You do it five or 10 or 20 mm -hmm. times, and all of a sudden, the, the themes start to emerge and start to repeat. And now you have much, much more clarity around where do we need to focus our enablement? Are we winning or losing based on price? Why do we keep losing to this competitor here, but winning against this other competitor over here? The, the one data point that's always been missing is, what's the customer's view? And so that's the data point yeah. that we've been, we've been providing. And it's endlessly fascinating. That's amazing, right? Look, when you actually think about it, 
it's very simple. <laughs> yeah. Like when you go back, like and I know that we go, a lot of companies measure, you know, MPS or they measure you know, that customer service rating, which asks, you know, a couple of basic questions. But, you know, again, what you're saying is just, this is not about guessing why they bought because think about the amount of money that's being spent on marketing and messaging and the way the sales team approach, go-to-market strategy. You're just going, you know what, let's put all that to the left. Let's leave that over there. Let's actually go to these people that are making the decision or no decision yeah, um, and finding that intel out. Um, and, and, you know, you said let's go to these people, and that's a really important point. They are people, hmm. and they're, they're professional in what they do as well. And so what you're asking for is appropriate. Yeah. Um, you're saying we'd love to get some feedback from you because that's something which could be really valuable to us, either in servicing your needs better in the future if we didn't win your business this time around, or for that matter, if we didn't, we, we did win your business in doing a better job of actually delivering on that over you know over the, the life of our relationship. Yeah. So it's it's a totally appropriate thing to ask for. We're not we're not trying to do it so we can beat up on our salespeople. We're not trying to do it so we can call foul on their, their buying process and, and try and get back in by the back door. We're doing it with very much the, the, the right intentions, which is let's learn, let's extract some value from this, and let's get better, win, lose, or draw. And, and most customers respond you know, really, really favorably to that. And oftentimes, it's like a truth serum. You can't shut them up. They will talk and talk and talk, and they will tell you stuff. And you know, the best you can do is sort of stop the back of your head blowing off and going, I can't believe a, that they're yeah. this open and transparent, and B, that we were so far off the mark. So, I mean, that happens day in, day out. Do you find like when you share those results with the client that's, you know, um, giving you the project or yeah. they've commissioned you to go out, right, and said, hey, help us understand this, do you find that they are very accepting of the information or are they a bit defensive at first when they receive that information? They're normally pretty accepting. The defensive bit tends to come earlier on in the piece, yeah. which is, do we need to do this? And why shouldn't we do this ourselves? And does this really make sense for us to do? So so they're the conversations which tend to be the ones which are not necessarily defensive, but it's like, I don't know if we want to do it. We've had a number of occasions where customers have, uh, vendors have said to us, we don't want to do this because we're afraid of what we're going to hear. So so they've been actually quite transparent in saying, you know, at, politically in this organization, getting unvarnished, unfiltered feedback from our customers is not something we really can can take. And yeah. so either we'll wait till you know a further period down the track or we'll respectively step back, which is the right decision to make because once you shine a light on this stuff, you can't unsee it. <laughs> so you have you've got plausible deniability if you don't know, if you haven't if you haven't yeah. asked the question. As soon as you've done that, as soon as you have this quantitative and qualitative feedback from your customers in their own words, it, you can't unsee that, and so something really needs to happen, and that's where you know some organisations just don't have the appetite; they don't have the stomach mm. to really hear what their customers want, want. But increasingly, most businesses are saying, "We want this. We need this. It's really, really valuable to us." And so, what we see for the most part is two reactions: one will be surprise when they hear things that they weren't expecting to hear, yeah. and the other is this sort of look where they go. Yeah, we kind of expected that. <laughs> so so it, it's not always a shock to the system. It, it, you know, if we go back to someone who say, look, we did 20 last reviews for you and here's the five themes that came up consistently. Yeah. You'll quite often see them going, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they would have, you know, they would, there is an under, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I think the ones that 
you know, go back a step when the businesses say, oh, we, this is not something we want to do. Or why can't we do this in-house? Yes. Um, that's a very interesting one, right? Because any type of data, when it's delivered internally, you can kind of m- perceive it and manipulate it to make it sound a certain way. And but when you know you know but when an external organisation is does the the you know the study and then says hey you know this is what we found it comes from a neutral perspective. Um, it does, and I, and I always say to a company if they're saying you know well, why can't we do this internally? My response would be you can, you absolutely can. Yeah, uh, you've been doing it up until this point, but you can do it internally. But there's a few sort of pros and cons. So if you do it internally, it makes it harder for the customer to be really really candid because. You haven't got that little bit of separation between you and them, um, even if you have a third party inside your own organization. But the bigger issue occurs, which is, what do you do when you get the feedback? Because I started doing these while I was still employed in a in a in an enterprise software company, and then all of a sudden I had all this feedback about my colleagues and my bosses, and and it's really politically sensitive feedback, yeah. and that put me in an incredibly awkward position. So what do you do? You go to your boss and go, you know that big deal we lost? Well, that was you. It's <laughs> this. Yeah. That can be move so 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 my response is always if 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 the decision is between do we do we do it ourselves or do we not do it or do it at all do it yourself mm. bring in a third party internally you know head of yeah. marketing or chief revenue officer or someone you can absolutely do it you'll get it done quicker yeah. but it's not going to give you the level of, of candid honest unvarnished feedback that you'll get otherwise you know you touch on something really really important right and I think um, that feedback you know how you said, you know, you got put in a really hard position and uh, to say to your boss, hey, we didn't win that deal because of you, right? I think, yeah. I think you know, many salespeople, I mean, the reality is we're losing deals all the time, whether we like it or not. I mean, I've never met anyone that's had 100% conversion. I don't know about you, but... Never. <laughs> and we're always losing deals. Um, and I think, and me and you, I've been involved in the project. I lost a deal because of me. Right, um, and at some time, at times, it's hard to accept that feedback, right? Especially yeah. when you're so passionate and you're committed to your craft. But I think it's it, it's incredibly important to hear the feedback that you don't necessarily want to hear, right? It is, and and what's really interesting is in ten years, I could count on one hand the number of times we've had feedback from a customer which was negative. It's almost always constructive because mm. it's not. It's not in their best interest to try and, you know, throw someone under the bus or, or you know, score points. Um, they're, they're doing it as a professional courtesy to, to the vendor based on either the relationship they had with the, with the sales team or based on some other reason. So, so they're giving constructive feedback. And it's, it's a very, very, you know, generous thing for them to do. And, mm. and in my world, feedback is a gift. You know, it's either positive or constructive. You know, that, that, yeah. they're, the two, they're the two types. So it's, it's organizations that are humble enough to say, we would really, really appreciate your feedback, and then smart enough to take some action. So I sat in a boardroom not that long ago um, with seven people from a customer who were giving their feedback as to why they hadn't picked a particular vendor. And the, there was a representative from the vendor, who a senior sales leader, who said, look, I'm not going to participate in this at all. I just wanted to really thank you for, for making your, the time to come and give us your feedback. And just to let you know that our, our cost of sale was upwards of a quarter of a million dollars on this deal. So any feedback you can provide would be really helpful because that's wow. the only kind of value. Yeah. And, and they ro- that, that rocked them all back in their chairs because most customers never think about what the cost of sale is to the vendor. It literally doesn't even cross yeah. their mind. So that's the trade-off. Whatever your time, effort, cost of sale is, 
That's the trade-off. If you can get 45 minutes or an hour of one or more pe- people's time on the, on the customer side to give you some really mm. tangible, specific things that you can take away, that's what you're buying with your cost of sale. Yeah. Otherwise, you're walking away with nothing. So this is look, this is awesome, right? And if we let's flip this for a moment. So you're a salesperson or you're a sales manager, you might not have the authority to sanction a, an external business doing a you know a, a customer review, win loss review. Yeah. But you're sitting there going, you know what, Key, and what you're saying is absolute gold, mm-hmm. because I want that intel. I want to know why my customers ghost me. You know, yeah. I had a brilliant relationship with this person, and then he's he's just gone cold. Yeah. What can they do from a self sort of review to kind of find that intel out to help them navigate the next opportunity a little bit differently? Well, I think, I think what they can do is they can, they can create a process internally. They can set an expectation with their customer early on in the sales cycle that they'd like to get some feedback yeah. and explain why. Right. So that's the first thing. Just put it on their radar. Not, don't wait for the, you know, for the horse to bolt before you close the barn door. Ask that question early on in the process. So then it won't, it won't seem a surprise to them. And the second thing they can do is, is kind of step back from the process and say, look, we're going to have someone else uh, run that for us internally. Mm-hmm. Because, so, so free, it's not going to cost them anything to do that, but it, it gives enough separation for the customer to feel really, really open to giving the feedback. And then the last thing they need to do, well, there's two more things. They need to work out what it is they want to find out mm-hmm. and then make, you know, put together some questions. And then the last thing they want to do if they're really smart is close the loop of the customer and say, hey, really appreciate it. Here's a couple of the things that we took away and this is what we're going to action. Yeah. So that's kind of best practice. That Because one of the reasons we can get 45 minutes to an hour to interview someone, but we can't get five minutes for that same person to do a survey is if I'm responding to a survey, I have no idea what's happening, where it goes. I just assume it's it's dropping into a, into a, you know, a black hole somewhere. Yeah. If someone's going to take the time to interview me and go through a very, you know, sort of in-depth conversation, then my sense is that they're putting more value on this conversation and therefore they're more likely to do something with it so i'm more inclined to engage so it's kind of perverse yeah. that, a, that a senior busy person will give you 45 minutes but they won't give you five minutes for a survey but that's that's the way it works absolutely so when i find out you know with with all the the studies that you've done and you've put together some incredible reports as well for industry what are some of the learnings that you've taken away of why you know why companies don't buy from particular organizations yeah, well, let, let's talk about that. So why, why do we not buy? We don't buy, or why do they not buy? They don't buy because they see your content as generic. Generic yeah. RFPs, generic collateral, generic emails, automated, bland, mm. boring, right? So, so not taking the time to actually tailor, customize, play back to people what you're hearing, make it, make it feel relevant to them. If they see you as too niche, if they see you as too risky, if they see you as spread too thin, um, if there isn't strong cultural fit, if they don't like you and trust you, if you don't differentiate yourself from all the other players, if you do your dry runs in the meeting with them rather than your dry runs in a boardroom in advance, <laughs> yeah. so you're making all your mistakes in the room in front of them, which unfortunately happens. Hmm. If you don't have a strong coach, if you don't have good engagement at, their, uh, at the C-suite level in that organization, I mean, the list goes on and on. There, there's, there's a ton of really specific reasons that we're losing. One of the things I talk to salespeople about this and sales leaders on a regular basis is get rid of your logo slide, right? You, you know that slide that has like 50 logos. Here's all the companies we work with. How great are we? Beat the chest, yeah. beat the chest. People are like, what do you mean? That's my favorite slide. Why would I get rid of that slide? You're opening yourself up to reference checking straight away. And we've seen quite a few deals get lost at that stage because 
you know, I'm going in to, to talk to a bank. So I dig around and I find all the, the financial services companies we've ever done any work with and I slap them up on a, on a, mm-hmm. on a logo slide. And someone sitting in the audience goes, I know someone there, I know someone there, I know someone there, and they pick up the phone. And immediately you're being reference checked. And yeah. in many cases, the person who, who answered the phone is like, I've never heard of them, I don't know who they are. So your credibility is shot. So if you want to put some logos up, put up three, change them each time, give the context why you're putting yeah. them up there, explain it as to what, answer the so what question. That's one of the big issues that we see a lot is that, you know, salespeople are just regurgitating information. They're just, you know, mm. it's the show up and throw up rather than saying, you know, giving context. Here's, here, here's this piece of information and this is how it pertains to you and this is why you should care. But if you haven't done good discovery, mm. then you can't join the dots between the stuff that, that you do well and the stuff that they care about. So you end up just kind of throwing mud against the wall and hoping it sticks. So it, it's yeah. amazing to me how little um, product and price play uh, a role in the final decision that gets made. The, what, what I've observed over 10 years is your product and price are incredibly important at getting you from the long list to the short list. And then when you're there, let's say there's three vendors on the short list and, I, I, and I'm part of the decision-making group. I say, can they all tick the box from a product functionality perspective? Yeah. Yes, 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 in different ways. Are they all between here and here from a ballpark pricing perspective? Yeah. And then I park those, those two things. And then I look at risk, cultural mm-hmm. fit. Who do we like? Who do we trust? Who have they worked with before? How, what are they like to engage with in the sales cycle? Um, how well do they understand our business? Have they challenged us? Have they brought new ideas to bear? Or have they just kind of followed the bouncing ball and done the things that we've told them to do? whole host of other mm-hmm. different things. So I gave you a big, long list of why do we lose big deals. There's an equally big, long list of why we what win big mean? deals, right? Yeah. You know, with, bespoke marketing, bespoke content mm. all the way through. Um, treating customers like customers before they become a customer, which means we don't just pay lip service. We actually, we disagree with them. We challenge them. We call them out. We bring new ideas. We, we run the risk of them kind of almost pushing back and saying, hang on a second, you know, we're not your customer yet. It's like, yeah, we know. But if you were our customer, this is what yeah. I'd be telling you. So, so it's a very, very different philosophy. Yeah. It's funny, right? Because I look at, just going back to what you said, you know, about the PowerPoint and the biggest, you know, the biggest deals that I've been part of um, so far, right? I say that so far because obviously I've still got a few years to go in my career, right? But PowerPoints were never there. Like I didn't use, it wasn't that they weren't invented. I just didn't use them. It was, it was really, um, it was, we really painted a picture. We really, you know, it was, um, I don't know, I kind of call it an art. Like the way it was described, the relationship, the way we drafted the plan together, where yeah. we kind of whiteboarded stuff and worked with, you know, senior leaders. And then I look back at some other deals that didn't go well. And you're right. It was because it was a PowerPoint. It was rushed, um, slapped some logos together thinking this is what they want to see. Um, I remember being part of a deal where um, I won't name the, <laughs> the company, but they were they were pitching to a, a, a business. And the first slide was a picture of one of their, of, of one of their assets or their the company's assets, they thought it was actually the competitors. And the executive director said, that's not ours. <laughs> and you don't need to sort of, it didn't, yeah. it didn't go, to, it didn't go well, right? But, no, imagine, no, and, and you're right, because that's what you said. They didn't, they didn't um, practice beforehand or do yeah. any, you know, preparation beforehand. It was quickly slapped together. They got there and they just went into it. Um, but I want to, you know, everything that you're discussing right now, like the mm-hmm. list of why people buy, like, there are so many things that you've just said that that separates the salesperson from the sales professional. Yeah. 
yep. you know, treating them like a customer before they become a customer, not just being lip service, mm-hmm. actually trying to provide, you know, pieces of value and insight and challenge because you've got that level. And, you know, our great mate, Tony Hughes always talks about, you got to lead with a point of view. You've got to elevate the conversation and be that expert um, and, and, and earn the right to be there. Yeah, and, and I actually take it a half step further and say, particularly for, for younger salespeople, earn the right to move to the next step of the process, Yeah, right? That's what you should focus on. Don't focus on making a sale because mm. once you start focusing on making a sale, a whole lot of things happen. You put pressure on yourself and then that pressure gets pushed on to, to your customer or your, your prospective customer and, and it's in the forefront of your mind. You can, you, can, you can get rid of all of that by saying, how do I earn the right to move to the next step of the process? I just do, do a really, really good job of this process. So that means when you have that first conversation, you, it's just a good conversation and you come across as intelligent and curious and you're, you're, you know, you've got a good process and you make sure that you follow up with them in a timely mm-hmm. fashion. Uh, so, so you're 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 not worrying about selling them anything. Yeah. They never sell them. That doesn't matter. You're earning you're earning the right to move to the next step, and that's taking the pressure off them. And the thing is, if we're treating them like a customer before they're a customer, the reality is on their side, they're asking themselves, "What are you going to be like to work with before they ever work with you?" Yeah. So, therefore, if we are really good at each step of that process, you just you keep moving forward until you run out of steps, and then they become a customer. And we still don't even we don't even stress about that. We don't go, oh, 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 when are you going to sign? We're like, okay, assuming that we move forward and X, Y, Z, then when we kick off, we're going to do this. And then, you know, we'll have a milestone meeting yeah. at month three. So, so we, we get really hung up on the, the getting the deal closed bit. We're actually, that should just be a step on the journey towards delivering the outcome that they need, which is where the focus should be. Mm. But we have this terrible tendency to focus on the sale. And then and one of the biggest frustrations, you talked about some of the studies we've done. One of the biggest frustrations we hear from customers is, Sales rep closes the deal. Sales rep gets gets swapped out. Account manager or someone else gets swapped in, and the customers tearing their hair out, going, "We've just spent nine months educating this person on our business and getting to know them and trust them, and now they're gone because your sales cycle is is you know dictates that you you don't do account managers. You've decided you do hunters and farmers. Yeah. No, no customer wants to be the prey or the produce. They want to be you know they want to be the 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 you know the focus of of your you know your business that's really interesting right because they've probably gone from an sdr who who books it in for an appointment gets the meeting to the ae the ae then takes it or you know the bdr then takes yeah. it and explores it to that point of you know then the ae comes in and then the customer service customer success manager comes in and there's four people i i read something shocking on linkedin earlier this week and it was a guy saying he reached out he didn't name the company so he reached out to a big technology company that he'd worked with before and said, I just want to buy your, your platform. Um, and then they created all these barriers and like, we need you to do this. We need you to do this. Then we need a meeting. Then we want a discovery. Then we want to And he's like, I know what I want. Just, just sell it to me. Yeah. But he couldn't, he couldn't, he literally couldn't buy it off them because that was their sales process. We, yeah. we, we, have become, we have become obsessed with our own sales process. Whereas actually we need to be obsessed with our customers buying process mm. and recognize that it's actually going to be a little bit different each time. That's, you know what? That's amazing. I love that. I mean, that's the best, the best piece of advice I've, you know, I've got on my board over there. I've got the buying process. I've got the sales process and they're connected and it's about, it's not about, you know, it's about meet the buyer where they're at in the buying process. Well, all right. Let me, let me tell you something that'll blow your mind. So I did some work with a, with a sales rep years ago who had been a customer 
And so he just moved across. He'd never worked in sales before. And he was freaking out. And he was like, I don't, I don't know anything about sales. All I know is about kind of how to buy, how to procure. Yeah. I was like, that's really interesting because that's a much more, that's a much more uh, important part of the process, in my opinion, than the sales process. So I said to him, map out how you bought in the past when you were a customer. And I said, and I'll show you a, a sales cycle. And then we could, we sort of, you know, match the two. And it was like, you're doing this at this step and they're doing this over here. You are doing this, they're doing this. And then, and then he did something really, really smart. He printed out and laminated those two sheets. And then he took them to uh, meetings with new prospects. And he said, this is broadly speaking, our sales process. And when I was a customer, this was kind of the buying process I went through. Have a look at that. Does that reflect what your process is? And they were like, oh, no, no, we're not doing this. We, we have a, you know, we have a, a quarterly board meeting and that's where we make buying decisions that we do this. And, and just annotate it. And he'd say, cool. So he, and he'd say, this is kind of the steps I'll be doing when you're doing this. So if, if anything doesn't make sense, you, you just let me know because maybe if we get out of work. So what he did was he created a common language. That's awesome. Awesome. And yeah. I wish I told him to do it. I didn't tell him to do that's it. That's pretty like, cool. You know, I, I can't say. But what, what that meant, which was more important than anything else, was none of his sales cycles went quiet. It wasn't that he won every single piece of business, mm. but one of the key reasons sales cycles go quiet is because we got out of whack with where yeah. they're at in their process and where we're at in our process. And he avoided that by just creating a common language mm. that both parties could use. So, so they didn't, they never felt that they were under this undue pressure yeah. or being dragged, kicking or screaming. And it's, you know, it's funny, right? Because I, I, I think that's amazing. And we, I, I think we've got to really take the time and think about this because there are so many, like I think the, the, the biggest competitor is not them going to a competitor. It's no decision, right? It's they just stay and they don't do anything. They don't even let you know. Yeah. And I think I asked myself, because I've been there myself. I think we've all been there where we had such momentum and then all of a sudden you get to that point and it's, it's just broken and you're like, what's actually happened for this to break down? Absolutely. You know? And I think sometimes we've got to think about this is these our, our customers, our prospects, they don't buy what we sell every single day, no. right? And sometimes they don't know how to navigate their own business to get something that they need that's critical to a point of decision, right? Which is quite a hard thing to admit to someone mm. where, you, where you have to say, I don't have, like, I, I've only seen it happen maybe one or two occasions. I saw a CIO recently, he said, my... Uh, budget, the things I could approve dropped from a quarter of a million to 25k because of a whole lot of things yeah. that happened in our business. And it was it was so rare for, for somebody on the customer side to admit that my capacity to get stuff done is not at the level that it used to be or that I thought it was. And so instead, what we'll do is we'll just go, we'll just go quiet. Mm. We'll just go. And it's actually an embarrassing position for them to be in a lot of the time as well. So there's a whole lot of things we can do to, yeah. to make that easier on them. And it's interesting because I'm working with a client at the moment, helping them with a, a sales enablement project. And uh, there's a system review and possibly changeover. And I remember, you know, I had a chat with the CIO only this week who said, like, when, when the price came up, he kind of dismissed price and said, that's not the issue. But then the CRO the next day is like, mate, that's a significant change. We're not going to. So already I'm looking at this going, holy moly, the salesperson that's got to navigate through this, there's actually competing competing priorities here one saying one thing one saying the other this isn't addressed early we're going to go through this whole scoping exercise get to a point of decision and it's just going to fall over right and i'm well, seeing that inside the tent versus outside we i won a deal at one point in my career and i did a, I did a win review on it thinking you know how great am i we you know we did this amazing deal and the feedback we got i think i talk about it in the book the feedback was 
you were the, you were terrible. You were the worst. We, we didn't want you. Nobody wanted you. And and we like fell over the line multiple times to stay in the process right the way through the process. And then at the end, the uh, the customer, every single person internally voted to go with the other vendor. And so we lost. Um, and the decision was taken to the CFO, and he was like, "Did everyone agree? Yep, yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing." And then he just threw one last question over the fence. He was like. What's their what's their five year product roadmap? Because you know this is a this is a kind of a heart lung transplant for our business. So we had this question arrive, you know, just logged over, and we responded. And as it turned out, the other vendor wouldn't commit to a five year product roadmap. They'd only commit to twenty four months. Yeah. And the CFO was like, "Nah, that's too big a risk for us." So we won this piece of business. <laughs> but we we were not only were we the least worst, we were the most worst at every step. <laughs> And if we hadn't done, if I had done that analysis, I would have been just going, "How good are we?" Yeah. Because we often don't know the internal dynamics and the things that are sort of happening. So you're right. These days, it's not a sales cycle; it's five sales cycles wrapped into one. Yeah. And we need to recognize everyone has different agendas, and maybe some of those agendas are are competing. Absolutely. And how to navigate that is that's tough. Yeah, and it's funny, you know. Like I think being part of that webinar this week and listening to Bridget from Qualtrics actually say that now the CFO with everything going on is going to be more in the driver's seat of making decisions and being part of the process. Yeah, I heard so that, to, yeah. You know, to design the proposals around the CFO, which, you know, is interesting, you know, and it, and it correlates well with the, the seven to nine buyers, you know, in, in, in the larger opportunities. So, so, mate, obviously this is a subject we could keep talking about for ages, but, uh, mate, I would love to know just before we, um, you know, uh, share with our guests how they can connect with you, um, wh- what's been the biggest influence on your career and why? I think the biggest, uh, probably two things I'd say. One, I've never had the word sales on any of my business cards in 20 years. Um, <laughs> and I think that one of the biggest things was me making peace with the fact that I'm in sales. For a long time, I was like, oh, I was reticent to say yeah. I was in sales because, because I had all of those hangups that, that so many of us have about, you know, I, well, I've got a degree and a postgrad and all this sort of stuff. And how am I in sales? Because, you know, sales, but, but actually I, I, what I realized was I was kind of conforming to all those negative stereotypes yeah. of the selling profession and not realizing just how much value we have the capacity to bring particularly if we're playing in the enterprise space. So I think that was a really important thing. And then another learning for me along the way was you need to invest in yourself. I think I fell into the trap of thinking you work for a business, that business, you know, pays to train and enable you. That's their responsibility. And I forgot, or maybe just didn't know that actually it's not anyone else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. Now, definitely take all the training you can get inside any organization you work for, but don't make that, the only thing you do, because mm. if you do that, you run the risk of, of becoming stagnant and stale and, yeah. and um, finding yourself, you know, in a, in a debt spiral, going to smaller companies and crappier patches and, and not being able to, you know, to manage your own destiny. So totally own that piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Continue to invest in yourself, disrupt the skills that have served you well, because they're not the skills that are going to serve you well for the next five years. And, and, you know, and, and keep that curiosity because otherwise you just get stale really, really fast. Yeah, that's incredible advice. And, mate, I ask most guests this. Sometimes I forget, but is sales an art or a science? You know what? The, the first logo or tagline I ever had when I went into business was Trinity, turning the art of selling into the science of sales. I, I, I have to say I think it's a bit, bit of both. I think I'm more on the art side because I'm less of a 
process person. And I suspect you're more on the science side because you're more of a process person. But I actually think you have to have a really good process, but then you need to, I'd almost ask it, is it IQ or EQ? Mm. And I think it has to be both because, you know, we have to sell to people's hearts and we also have to sell to their heads. Um, so, I, so I definitely think it's, it's a mix of the two. Yeah, great response, and I'd love to share my response one day. But uh, you know, I want to, I want to sort of be partial. But, uh, but mate, I really appreciate you coming on, Key. And um, where can our listeners find and engage with you? Sure. So you can head to uh, to our website, which is trinityperspectives.com.au. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Key and McLaughlin. You can head to Amazon if you want to grab a copy of the book, Rebirth yep. of Salesman. It's there, um, and and now on the Sales IQ website as well. So I'm part of the the Sales IQ family, which is pretty cool. Fantastic, so, um, and we're, we're so pumped to have you, mate. Well, our, our young editor, uh, Zach, who's got to do the show notes, he's got a few show notes to put in there now, mate. So, uh, um, Kian, I, you know, absolutely appreciate you, mate. Um, I think, you know, we get on well, we've worked well together, and I love the contribution you're making to our industry because, you you know, you're, you're, you're one of the uh, people that are, are elevating our p- profession, mate. So thank you for everything you do. Thanks for having me on, mate.